Rodney. You know, just a second ago, <laughs> when we were getting ready to hit record, you were chewing on food, and you probably will put more food in your mouth in a moment here. And I just want to let everybody know that one of the values that we hold uh, as individuals and really as an organization is mm-hmm. somebody eating in somebody else's ear yeah. as often as possible. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's an amazingly pleasurable circumstance. So here's my take on it. Someone who I'm talking to must like AM, ASMR, right? So maybe, maybe just being inclusive to the ASMR crowd by chewing, maybe, they, maybe it just makes them feel welcome to the conversation. It might no. repulse everybody else, but hey. Hey, as long as I'm bringing in someone new. But by, by making a declaration that this is our culture, it has gotten, like, it's no big yeah, thing. We're okay with it. Yeah, we're okay with it. Those are the Though, crunchiest, crunchiest foods I've ever heard in my life, but I like it. I'm okay with it. That's who we are. Okay. We are. All right. That was good. I like that. All right. Here we are back to season four with an another amazing conversation. And a reminder, season four is all about American ideals. And as we all know, there are many shades to today's America. Yeah, yeah. You know, who's broad stripes and bright stars and all that kind of stuff, right? So look, here's the deal. When we're talking about American ideals, we very rarely talk about compassion. And Keith and I, we're anchors for compassion. We're anchoring humanity and compassionate conversation. So hopefully these conversations do that and and anchor you to a space of compassion. And today we are with the amazing Joanna Schwartz. Joanna, I tell you, this this conversation is captivating. Like listening back to it, the edits, like I just wanted to keep listening. She's a professor. She understands so much about constitutional law. And for this season, she is just a perfect guest. And we talk a lot of things. We talk about shared ideals. We talk about criminal standards of police prosecution. We talk about the ethics of deadly force. We talk about her journey, what got her to to end up being in law, even though she had no ambition to do so early in life. So like in law, practicing law, not like practicing law. law. That's right. Not in law. Law, not married, but practicing law. Um, so we're super excited to bring this episode to you. And um, yeah, enjoy this show. And before we go to that point, Keith, I want to point you to www.moreincommonpod.com. And let me tell you about that. That's where you can find all things more in common. That's right. Our socials, our podcasts, our consulting, our merch, all of it, our blogs. We used to blog, apparently. So, moreincommonpod.com and while you're on this here app listening to us maybe rate us and or review us it, it helps us in in algorithms and 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 be seen and heard mainly heard because this is a podcast feel free you know we, we would appreciate it or maybe just share it with a friend or family member that you think might get something out of it really appreciate you let's get into the show So before we get into this episode, I got to tell you a little bit of something that Rodney got me into about seven months ago. One of those things, like he talks about these things all the time and I hardly ever try them. But this one Super in particular, true. Audible. 
Audible for audiobook listening. Like I tell you, I love reading books. I don't have a lot of time. I got two kids, two jobs. I got uh, you know, a relationship that I try to invest in, but I really like to read books and there's a lot of information out there that helps us learn for our for our business, learn for podcasting, learn for all of the things or just pleasure in reading. Mm-hmm. And it gives me that space to to listen. So Rodney, thank you for for putting me onto them because I'm excited to put other people onto it too. Yo, man, glad I could help. I love it. I've been doing it for years. I highly recommend it. And I know you do it for for driving and yeah, I do it for driving time. in LA. And and honestly, you know, you get to get one book for free. You can you can send a book to a friend for free. You can return any book if you don't like it. I mean, that's lovely. And uh, you know, they got a, a trial period going on. You get a free free membership to start. So we're gonna put a link on our website. Go check it out. Uh, it's an affiliate link. We do get a little bit on the back end. So you're supporting us. We would really appreciate it. Go to our website, moreincommonpod.com. Check it out. Check it out. Audible. In a very particular way for me, I mean, the kind of research that I have been doing has been primarily focused on looking at the Supreme Court's assumptions about policing and about police police misconduct litigation and and those assumptions then guide the the supreme court's um, doctrine about various things and a lot of my research is simply proving those assumptions wrong hello and welcome back to the more in common podcast i am one of your hosts rodney and today we are with joanna schwartz Joanna is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law. She teaches civil procedure and a variety of courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Joanna is one of the country's leading experts on police misconduct litigation. Additionally, she studies the dynamics of modern civil litigation and is co-author with Stephen Yeasel of Leading, of leading Casebook Civil Procedure 10th Edition. Joanna is a graduate of Brown University and Yale Law School. Previously, she was with a leading civil rights law firm in New York City, where she specialized in police misconduct, prisoners' rights, and First Amendment litigation. So I'm pretty much thinking Keith and I are going to just sit back and learn today. Uh, let's, let's, let's jump in and, and, and learn some more. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for joining hey. us. Very happy to be here. Very happy to uh, have you. So. I'm very excited to start this conversation. I don't know how many places I really want to go with this in my head, but I'm going to stick with one. Um, so there, <clears throat> excuse me. So this season, the the more in common season four is all about American ideals or shared American ideals, and uh, of course, we believe that we have more in common um, than we often pay attention to. And we often get caught into parsing details that blur what our commonalities are as people. Um, Now, during our pre-call earlier in the week, you had mentioned an organizing principle is to understand the extent to which we don't see the world the same and how these individual views seem to shape the reality around us. Uh, Paraphrasing, uh, those aren't the exact words. Um, But so in your years of study, I'm very curious to understand what you have come to understand around shared ideals and the loss of grip on what those really are 
and getting into the mud more often than not. So my mind goes in many different directions when I hear that question, uh, because I think there are so many examples. And um, as I mentioned, when we had talked before, uh, I feel like we're at a place in our world right now where the uh, the contents of a phone call, for example, can be um, you know displayed in a in a memo that that half the country views you know as um, evidence of a perfect phone call, and half the country views as evidence of um, corruption and impeachable offenses. Um, and so, I do think that that we see around us all the time um, uh, circumstances where we are looking at the same the same story, the same facts, and reaching different conclusions. Um, it happens all the time in the law um, where uh, you, you know, in many circumstances, the underlying sort of basic facts of what happened in any given case aren't really in dispute. It's what you take from those facts and whether you see them as evidence of um, wrongdoing or not. And I mean, I, I think a lot about policing. Um, and I think that this happens all the time with policing, um, where there is a shooting um, of a of a often a uh, black man by a police officer. Um, and the focus of the discussion is on whether that shooting was justified, whether the officer had reason to be afraid, whether the officer had reason to think there was a gun. Um, and, uh, and parsing out the facts, often uh, the facts are, are not disputed. Um, and the question is the reasonableness of the officer's fear in that moment. And the way in which people see that evidence differs dramatically. There was actually, um, there was a Supreme Court case um, where, called Scott versus Harris, where there was a uh, dash cam video of a car pursuit that ended in a shooting by the police officer. And um, Supreme Court looked at that case, looked at the evidence. Eight of the justices said, there's no dispute here. There was, there, the officer's shooting was, decision to shoot was completely reasonable. It was not excessive force. One of the justices looked at the same video and said, there is evidence that it's, that it was excessive force. Um, and some law professors took that video and showed it to something like 1400 people, asked them different questions about their, um, background, community, um, race, education, and a bunch of different things and found that those people who all looked at the same video saw different things. Well, you just said it. And what you just said, I thought I heard two different questions being answered. One was, was the fear reasonable? And the second one, was there a sex of force? Like, mm. Those are <laughs> different. Well, in the world of the, of the law, they are, um, they are, uh, connected. So, I mean, what the law says, essentially, what the Supreme Court's 
definition of excessive force um, or reasonable force, the, the boundary between excessive and reasonable force um, under the Fourth Amendment is whether um, uh, whether the force was excessive under the totality of the circumstances, whether the force was objectively reasonable, so whether the officer um, reasonably believed that force was necessary. And that is based on this totality of the circumstances, which focuses on, um, you know, whether, including as a bunch of different factors, including whether the suspect posed an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others. And so the officer's view of whether he was threatened is relevant to whether the force they he used was reasonable. So do there you too. think from your expertise that it, I mean, it's hard to, I mean, the Fourth Amendment, and, you know, there's interpretation of the law, but there's so much subjectivity in all of that to open itself up to any potential interpretation that you decide you want to tell that day. Like, do you think that's how it should be looked at? Or like, what would be a, a way that could reconcile that perception, that, that emotional connection or the circumstances that indicate action versus just not yeah you know, versus just looking at context or the, the specifics of action, regardless of the circumstance, police or otherwise, but specifically in this case, police. That's a weird question. I'm just trying to get it all out. Well, <laughs> I, hopefully I, that I, made sense. I think uh, hopefully this is responsive to the question. But I mean, one thing I, I completely agree with you that that standard, the way in which it's created, and we could go deep into the way the Supreme Court has has talked about it. Um, I mean, and, and every multiple ways in which the court has talked about it is right in line with your concerns. I mean, there's all of these different factors. The court says you can't use 2020 hindsight. Um, and the number of different factors and the fact that you're focusing on the officer's experience at the time opens up that standard dramatically for um, for an officer to be able to say at any moment um, that uh, that they felt that that they needed to use force and that that essentially it's very difficult to question, um, except under the most extreme circumstances. I mean, one way in which you can change that, <clears throat> California uh, passed a statute um, that's gone into effect just very recently that says that um, deadly force can only be used when it's necessary. So changing the word reasonable to the word necessary um, cuts out perhaps some of those um, gray, the grayness of those lines. There's other places like New York City and, and a number of other places have created bright line rules that say you cannot, except under extraordinary circumstances, of course, there's always a, a loophole. You cannot shoot at a moving car. You know, you can just sort of create bright lines about things that just are so risky that that they are presumptively um, presumptively beyond um, beyond the the scope of what's allowed. Um, so you could just create those things with one other thing. I mean, yeah. I the thing that I've been thinking about a lot and have written a little bit about is that instead of 
looking at these moments, these shootings that happen again and again and again, and asking whether the officer's split-second decision was a reasonable one. I think, and then having those disagreements, I think that we could be asking the wrong question, and this goes to what I think Keith was asking. I think that we could all agree that the police killing more than a thousand people every year is something that we would like to try to reduce. A thousand people killed every year by the police. That seems um, like something we should all be able to agree is something that we should want to reduce if we can. And then think about how to reduce how to reduce that number. And what medicine has done, what um, other sort of high um, complex um, uh, areas of high stress have done in aviation, in medicine, in nuclear power, and other areas is look at how you can change systems to make it less likely that errors occur. So in, um, in medicine and in policing, there's checklists. There's, um, there are limitations on how, off, how long a person can work because there's all sorts of evidence that being fatigued you know, affects your ability to make decisions. Like being um, Right. Um, there's been studies in policing about how um, it, Charlotte Mecklenburg, which is a you know, police department that's done a fair bit of analysis of their own data, has found that officers who have been um, in high-stress calls, like domestic violence calls, and then are sent back out again on the street are more likely to use force because they have already, you know, their their systems um, are depleted. Their ability to handle stress is depleted. It's like a stressed out judge is more likely to issue stronger sentences in the exactly. afternoon after lunch. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so another way to think about that is, and the, the thing that I've thought about concretely um, is about, uh, car, you know, stops, police stops. Um, police officers are trained to believe that every police stop, every traffic stop is a danger. And if you look at training videos that, you know, people are, the, the training videos and trainer training suggests that when police stop people in their cars and go up to the car, they could be shot. At any moment, they could be shot. And then we send police officers out to stop people in Traffic, traffic stops as sort of the primary way in which police and um, citizens engage. And so officers are told that they have to make these stops. They're also told that they're incredibly stressful and terrible things could happen at any moment. Um, and then them. they're priming them. And then there's biases, um, racial traffic. biases. And right, well, then, then there's the stress of traffic. And they have to make these split-second decisions. And they make mistakes, whether or not that you know they're so-called bad cops. They are primed to make mistakes. And why are we putting cops and citizens into those into those circumstances? If a cop sees a broken taillight, pull the person over, take a picture of their license plate, and then send them a ticket. We don't have to have these high-stress engagements at the side of the highway. Um, as often as we do. And if we had them less often, we would be having fewer conversations about whether shootings were 
reasonable, whether officers' fear was reasonable, because officers wouldn't be put in a circumstance where they were in that state of fear. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the picture thing is a good idea. It's, it's a lot like um, traffic light cams, which I know have their own legal <laughs> issues, but um, or speeding in other countries. They have radar detectors on the side of the road. You could just get a speeding ticket mailed, mailed to you. Um, a quick thing back on the, the deadly force. Uh, I feel like it's so much overcomplicated, like whether the word is necessary or reasonable, kind of to your point, Joanna and Keith, what you were saying in a way is, uh, <laughs> <Keep> <laughs> is, uh, like, like there are crimes. We have actually, well, many states have an established death penalty, like something you can do that can be punishable by death. But then, like, is running from a cop ever a reason for death? Like, even if you did steal something, like, is that, is that, is, is the punishment for that okay to be death? And, and like, for me, whether like we, whatever the word is, however you want to parse it, it's like, what's like the basic premise seems very off. You're, (laughs) um, the twin moment, by the way, um, because that was, my thought exactly and like what is my i was actually going to ask a question along that line like what is why do police regardless of circumstance have the ability to apply deadly force and i mean could that not could could that not simplify it and i'm sure in many ways but just get rid of the opportunity to apply deadly force maybe without like an instant warrant approach because you're issuing the SWAT team to a whatever it may be. I don't know. There's always an extenuating circumstance for everything situation, but like, why, why is that a thing? Like why, why can you issue deadly force on a traffic stop? Well, I don't think that, that anyone would say that you could, that you could use deadly force because someone was speeding. Um, the, the justification is, is, but like, it's like Philando Castile, right? Like, Oh, there's a threat. He has a gun. Oh, so now I have my gun and I'm, I have the opportunity to reasonably or unreasonably or necessarily or unnecessarily apply deadly force. Why do I even have that? If the initial premise though, is that a traffic stop is dangerous as you just said, Joanna, then, then I have to be prepared. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, the presumption is that a traffic stop could be dangerous. Philando Castile had a gun. And I'm, I'm not defending, I'm not defending the decision to shoot. I'm just, I'm obviously, right. I'm, I'm explaining the way. You're stating the facts. The You're law, stating facts. Yeah. The way the, the law, law interprets it. Yeah. The officer, I mean, the question is whether the officer um, reasonably, it was objectively reasonable for the officer to fear for his safety. And this is where, I mean, you asked at the beginning of the, of the conversation about justice and social justice. I mean, you see, and I'm far from the first person to say this, um, you know, you see, uh, armed, you know, white, white people armed, you know, uh, taking over the Michigan, uh, you know, state house. And there is, um, in the, uh, in, you know, w- the fact that people are not shot in those situations. And again, I don't want anybody to be shot, but the, but the, you know, there, those officers do not feel, um, th- you know, that there is a threat clearly. And Philando Castile, who says, 
I have a gun. It is licensed to me. I want you to know that so that when I get out my, you know, as I am getting out my um, license and registration, you know that to be true. And he is a threat. And people who are storming um, the have state either, are not. The, have either of you seen Men in Black? Of course. The first I mean, movie? A Many long times. time ago. All right. So there's this scene. You may I'll detail it in case you don't remember it. Uh, I just realized the genius of it. So Will Smith is being interviewed for becoming a man in black. He doesn't even know it. He's just a beat cop. And they're like, they see him and they bring him in and they show him a scene. And there's a white cop. There's a whole bunch of aliens. Aliens. Yeah. Hanging on the street pole, walking down the street, coming yeah. out of the door. Not like aliens, like foreign people, like alien, like monsterish aliens from other planets and dimensions and and then this little white girl walking down the street with a whole bunch of like physics books quantum physics books and they're like he's like 10 who's the threat here yeah and he says obviously it's Susie. what yeah. is she doing with those quantum physics books? and like it's funny it was funny at the time what i realized the genius of it is being a black man growing up like you're that alien you're that monster that everybody sees you as a threat and they overlook the normal threat because it's normal. It's just walking down the street, and it's like, and the irony of militia-led militia-led um, protest is that like these are organized entities carrying, in some cases, not all, in subsets of these protests or whatever the case, or Charlottesville, that are designed for anti-tyrannical government. They are in essence, in place to fight the institution of criminal subjugation against freedom. So I am, in essence, there to make sure the police don't infringe upon my rights. So they are a bigger threat. Government, the government as a whole. Like, uh, and on, on principle than, than, than the normal, normal situations. That, that I, I, just, I find the whole underlying premise... Like the, it just to Rodney's point in, in the question, like of just the 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 analysis of deadly force, like we, we need to have an, a better check and balance for the proactive application of it so it isn't so reactive. So we then don't have to look at it in our memory banks, which we all know eyewitness testimony, especially if it involves you, is is not <laughs> the greatest form of, of, of evidence. Uh you said can't use twenty twenty hindsight. Um, okay, so if I have, if I'm an officer and I have a chest cam, what's the point if I can't, if we evaluating it later can't use 2020 hindsight, what's the point of the camera? Well, the camera would capture, um, what was I mean, happening in that the moment? The camera would capture what was happening in that moment. That's right. Okay, so, then so you can how is view it hindsight up until the end. Well, it's sort of like Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah. You mean you you can't say, ah, he could have done something else, or he should have tried to. Can't uh, judge the action by the result. Yeah, I mean it's it's it. You are you are absolutely right. It's essentially just giving an extra layer. I mean, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gives extra layer upon extra layer upon extra layer of deference to law enforcement when using force. Um, absolutely true. Um, and 
you know, there are, there are, I mean, in some ways, I, I mean, the, the, the court as a, or the court system as a protection um, has really greatly been limited by what the court, what the Supreme Court has done and then told, told lower courts to do. Um, and, you know, different states can make their own choices. The states can go sort of in their own policies and rules above that, above that um, uh, very deferential limit. Um, but there's all sorts of political pressures for states not to, not to do so. Oh, for sure. As, right. as our president very clearly called out with the COVID-19 thing, governors will do what I tell them. <laughs> Only when Because I have that power, absolutely. Only when Which, you know. Well, but it other. comes, I mean, that suggesting the pressure comes from above, it actually comes very much from below. I mean, I think that, you know, if you think about the dynamics of policing, yeah. um, some of it, you know, some of it comes from what the Supreme Court says, but there's a ton that comes from a very local place, um, local police mm. unions, um, mm. you know, political pressures, uh, advocacy groups um, on, you know, on either side, um, the press, um, which can all be very local. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, decisions about whether charges are brought, um, for example, um, or, or whether a case is filed or whether a case is settled, you know, can, can have to do with all of those very, local pressures i want to change well it's not really a huge change in direction but leading up to this we talked a bit about justice and you have a lot a lot of amazing stuff to say about it um i want to first ask you what you know as what you know as the definition of justice <sighs> or how you interpret that the definition of justice Well, I mean, I guess that I would think of justice as um, justice having been served when a person has gotten what they deserved. I mean, and how you define deserve, um, you know, depends greatly on what kind of justice you're talking about. That's a very broad definition. No, no, I, but I think it, it, well, I don't know. I don't know if most people would agree with it. I, I think we, either way, whether we agree with it or not, I think we can use that as a, as a base. Um, because then we kind of talked about you know, justice and social justice. And you, you brought up a, a really, a really strong point. Like, what does social do in front of that word? Is it, is there, like, what is, What's the what is the difference between the two, or why is there a distinction between the two? I guess, um, and curious to get your 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 expanded thoughts on, I guess, justice as a whole, and then the social component. Because I mean, I as you said it, I was thinking about. It, I'm like, huh, like technically, justice is social, or it should be. Like it's the distinction is almost redundant, um, but then maybe not. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess what I would think about it in terms of social justice is, um, I mean, very sort of literally justice in society. Um, so whether that's um, wealth or opportunity or, uh, or um, health, 
Um, that's, I suppose, social justice. And then when I think about justice, I guess, um, being a lawyer, I think, um, sort of the work that justice does, when it, if it's not social justice, then I think perhaps it's more directly within the judicial system. But I guess I'm defining justice um, in contrast to social justice. And it's um, it kind of goes back to the that first question in in similar like justice can be seen similar like in a in a police shooting um, justice is served if the police in a certain situation are indicted and found guilty um, or on the other side justice is served if they are let go because they are a police officer and they were under threat and it would be an injustice to find them guilty. Um, how do I kind of want to, you know, go down this rabbit hole. You kind of gave out something though, when you were just talking about death or deadly shootings of, okay, reducing from a thousand people shot a year. I think we can generally all agree with that. How do we reconcile those different perspectives from your your point of view and trying to anchor on some of these common points rather than ground up and really just getting stuck in the mud before we even know what we're trying to accomplish? It's, I mean, it does seem that we can... Well, so, so a couple things. One is, I mean, I think that if the definition of justice is, you know, that people get what they deserve, um, whether, you know, under, under any, in, in the law, under the law and, and in society, of course, the sticking point um, or the trick, and this goes to the broader theme of this discussion, um, is how we think of, of des deserving um, and how we measure um, deserving Ness. Um, and, uh, and there is so much division in the ways in which we see the world, um, and just see concrete facts on the ground, different ways in which we interpret those facts. I think there's equal, if not more variation in what we see as, uh, what, what people deserve, um, and how to go about thinking about, um, how, what we deserve. It strikes me that the more abstract you go in framing the question, the easier it is to achieve some um, consensus. Mm -hmm. So should, should, should a, a thousand innocent people be killed every year by a police officer? I mean, oh, should, should little children be killed in school shootings. I mean, who would say that they should be? I can't, you know, you could reach consensus that no kindergartner deserves to die in a school as a result of a shooting. I, I mean, this is, it, it definitely is a, an interesting reflection on, on how we all think in, in the human dynamic. I'm curious, um, though, where did this all start? How did, how did, what, what's your, what is your path to, to really getting to studying this and, um, making this your, your, your life's work? That got me thinking that I was maybe interested in being a social worker. 
Um, then I got a job um, working for an alternative to prison program in the Bronx. That got me interested in uh, maybe doing law school instead of being a social worker. Went to law school, was interested in being a public defender. Um, then started working on some cases while I was in law school about prison conditions um, on the civil side, so seeking money as opposed to doing criminal defense. And um, then became a civil rights lawyer after college, after law school um, and sort of inspired by the work that I did in, in, in law school. Um, and then had no thought that I was going to be a professor, um, thought that I was going to continue living in New York um, and um, ended up moving to Los Angeles for uh, my husband's work. And then started looking for things to do um, in Los Angeles. Ended up um, teaching legal writing at UCLA, and started going to you know hear talks by faculty and thought maybe I wanted to do some writing of my own. Um, I had all sorts of questions that um, had popped into my mind during my time as a civil rights lawyer. So I did a fellowship where for a couple of years where I started doing some of that research. And then I ended up getting a job back at UCLA on the tenure track. Um, and here I am, but I've did, sort did, of. So what uh, was, what was the original dream? Was it singing, acting? Is that the, like the childhood oh, dream? I don't, I don't, I wasn't a kid who had a childhood dream like that. Um, I, um, didn't have a specific plan. Definitely wasn't to go to law school. I enjoyed school and I enjoyed, I did a lot of theater in high school. Um, but I didn't have a specific plan. So, and yet you're a pretty high achiever, I'm presuming. It's an interesting question because I don't, I think I sort of, I think I sort of went backwards into being a high achiever too. I, I mean, I did well in high school. Um, I, I mean, I, things have obviously worked out really well um, for me and I have all sorts of fancy um, things on my resume, but I wouldn't have described myself as an overachiever in high school. Um, I did kind of what I needed to do. Um, friend of mine used to oh and I used to always do our math together and I was in the highest math class but like I would sort of play Russian roulette on when I actually did my homework you know the teacher would sort of check every third or fourth day and I would kind of do it every third or fourth day and hope that I hit it with you know him checking the homework and I did pretty well my friend was always annoyed that I managed to only do you know a quarter of the homework but I managed to hit it on the days that our teacher checked um that's sort of my recollection. I mean, I was driven, you know, I, I was passionate about some things. I really liked writing. Um, but, um, and, and, in, and in college, in my first semester, first year of college, I got an incomplete in a class that met on Friday mornings at 845 because that was too early for freshman year of college. <laughs> I got and, one incomplete in my first two years of college. Like you're, I feel like you're telling my my academic story here. Like keep going. I'm I'm fascinated. Like my first three years were incomplete. But then um, I got really into it. Wait, so you used, and and and, feel free to 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 uh, 
not well okay you used some words um earlier when talking about what keeps you going uh that i identify with as a lot of the reasons that i've achieved uh and i would say many of them like negative reasons for doing good things in my life um were those present early on in your life or just more in fear Struggle. struggle Yeah, feel free and feel free to kibosh using those. But like, I just wanted to, like, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, I don't like it. I mean, you know, I wish that I was, I wish that the things that motivated me were, uh, were shinier and prettier than that. I mean, in some ways you could think of moving forward, you know, either you're moving forward because you see, you know, a pot of gold over the, you know, over the rainbow and you're, and you're striving for it, or you're like Indiana Jones and the big boulder is, um, rushing behind you and that's pushing you forward. And I wish it was the pot of gold, um, more often um, I feel like it's more often the boulder, but if I'm being completely honest with myself, or I should say it a slightly different way, I think that that there is a perspective shift that I have more control over um, than sometimes I recognize, um, where I see something as the boulder behind me. But if I just took a moment and thought about my values, goals, priorities, interests, I could reframe it in my mind um, as something that I was more affirmatively seeking out. Why do you wish that? Well, it sounds a whole lot less stressful and more satisfying to Hmm. um, be affirmatively seeking something out um, than being pursued by something. I think mm. there's a, you know, there's a sort of martyr complex that comes along with feeling mm. like you have to do something because you're being chased or mm. you're being forced and less ownership over the choices that you're making. So where, yeah. where does like, so we, we haven't, right. Where did you actually, did you grow up in New York? I grew up in Washington, DC, Washington, DC. Where does, that emotional web of Mm, nuance and yet like this this early stage mm, do enough to get by right like i'll do enough so i'm not doing too much but you know i know i'll 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 be able to be fine it's not like it's going to be a hard hard road there to a much they i mean <laughs> an overachiever's life in a way, right? Um, how, where does all that come from? So first, I have to say that I'm watching you both on the split screen, and and Keith's response is this very sort of deep question about where this comes from foundationally. And I could hear Rodney saying, "Is that DC proper where you're from?" <laughs> the answer to Rodney's question is easier. Yes, DC proper. I had DC license plates on my car. Although, you know, we were on the, you're a rare, you're I a am rare a rare, I'm a rare bird. Um, yeah. I, we were on the, on the, um, I was born in Southwest Washington. We moved to, um, 
upper, what they call upper Northwest Washington um, when I was in kindergarten or so, which is still in DC, but, but on the Maryland border. Um, but I, 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 yes, DC proper, as far as, um, you know, the actual formal boundary lines um, mm. go. Um, so that's the easier, that's the easier question of the two to answer. I don't exactly know, um, where it's come from. Um, and it surprises me a little bit, um, that I, that I am motivated in that way. I mean, I think that of course there've been times of, um, you know, where I've in the past where I've been motivated by, by fear and, um, felt like the boulder was, was running behind me in other parts of, of my life. Um, but it's almost like, you know, the more that you do, um, the more that you're asked to do and the more, you know, if you do, um, if you do, you know, the, the more that you do, the more that you're asked to do. And, um, there's a lot about, um, my current life that feels very focused on other people outside the world. I mean, when you're in high school or college, or at least when I was, I mean, my world, the people that I were thinking was thinking about and, you know, the choices, the, the thing that I was thinking mostly just about myself and, you know, my very small, um, you know, tight group of, of friends. And so obligations, I mean, were just sort of doing what I sort of motivated by, by me and what I was, was doing and what I needed. Um, and, you know, the life as it's my life as it's currently constructed is, is primarily focused on, it feels, um, doing things for others, mm. um, and, and making choices that sort of advance, um, what it is that they need. And of course I get joy out of those things as well. And this goes to part of the you know, thinking about the way in which you, you, you create the, um, the framework for which you understand what you're, what you're doing. Um, would that at all be a result of any of the guilt or obligation or maybe even justice? I think that was one of the words you used as a motivator, potentially. Would, sorry, can you rephrase that question? The, the focus on others. Uh, especially like, yeah, the focus on others, would that be a result of those feelings? Sure. Sure. Um, I think that, the, yeah, the focus on others is based on um, what I value and what I um, think is right and what I think is just. And I get a lot of satisfaction about, you know, with, in working with others, supporting others. Um, but it, it also can be, um, exhausting. It's interesting that you ended up in the field of justice by circumstance, having grown up in DC proper. 
um, it's similar. Like I ended up in the IT field by circumstance when both of my parents were professional IT people. Um, right. Like it was never intentional, but it somehow worked out that way. Right. Um, were you exposed to it a lot? What, what did your parents do? Well, so both of my parents are lawyers and my mm. mom, in fact, uh, is a retired law professor. So I didn't, I did not <laughs> fall very far. Apples and trees. Tree. That said, I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't expect that that's what I was going yeah. to, to do, but I certainly, the path was, um, very well trod. Mm. Um, and yeah, and my it's parents like it's were, you, do what you know, almost right. My parents were, um, I mean, you know, my parents came to DC in the sixties, you know, um, and thought a lot about um, good government and about justice in sort of broad terms. But I wouldn't say, you know, they weren't like, you know, they weren't marching on, you know, on the Capitol and taking me with them, you know, as, as children, as a mm -hmm. child. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, dinner table conversations were very much focused on, um, on the law and justice and injustice. Um, uh, but not, you know, not in the particular areas that, you know, that I think most about. Hmm. You, there's something you just said that I just want to go back to real quick. Um, prior to that answer, um, it can be exhausting. Uh, I, I can, I think I can imagine, but like, uh, what do you do to deal with that? Like, how do you, mm. you seem like a very, like, you're just a very well-balanced, calm, happy, for the most part, extremely thoughtful. Like, for those who can't see your face as we ask these questions, I can see turmoil with some of the questions as you're thinking through the answers. Um, and I think that's because these are big existential problems that we're talking about. It's not, I mean, it's legal, yes, but it's like we're, these are huge human problems. But like, how do you deal with that? The the fatigue mm. um, that comes with dealing with others' plights and trying to make it right, and sometimes getting it right, and sometimes it not happening, uh, and pro and whatever. And I'm sure there's tons of other things in there that, that cause fatigue that I can't even imagine. I mean, just chasing justice can cause fatigue, and it's like a perpetual boulder. It's easy to see that as a boulder chasing you. Yeah, I feel pretty, I feel pretty, uh, pretty tired most of the time. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I, you know, as far as, as far as justice goes and social justice goes, I mean, the, the work that I do related to policing is the thing that makes me not feel fatigued mm -hmm. <laughs> to me. That's, I mean, you know, and and you could, you could look at what I, how I spend my days. I mean, studying, uh, police training outlines and writing law review articles about them, you know, is a, is a pretty comfy way to be. Um, I mean, hopefully it's useful, but it, to me, it feels like a very comfy way to be, um, playing some part in, um, in efforts to improve policing. Um, 
that I mean, I hear a little bit, a little, a slight hint of self-effacement there, but we don't have to go into that. I, does it? Is it? Is it recharge you? Like, is that the part Absolutely. of your work that doing that? Just yeah. getting deep into. I mean, to me, getting deep into research and um you know the the articles that i write is very satisfying and of course there's frustrating moments but i never feel the boulder behind me um when i'm doing my research i mean that's just i mean that Mm. is truly like the moments where i'm looking for a, a pot of gold um you know the 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 um the fatigue comes much more from sort of the daily life and um, sort of being, um, I make, I, you know, this is, I, I, in my life, um, my life is arranged in a way that to my own doing puts for the most part, other people's comforts over my comfort. Mm. Um, here's an example, uh, in the 25 almost years that I have been with my husband, um, and probably 24 or 23 of those years we've lived together. Uh, he has always been either working in his, in the same home or within a 10 minute drive from where, um, from where he lives. Mm-hmm. I have always had upwards of an hour to get to where I work with one year as an exception. When, when I lived on the Lower East Side, I worked at the Bronx, in the Bronx. Then we moved to Brooklyn, and I worked in Midtown. Um, then we lived in, there was one year where I lived and worked in Lower Manhattan. Um, then we lived in L.A. in sort of Hollywood, and I worked in Woodland Hills. Then, um, you know, now we live in uh, Los Feliz, you know, right north of downtown, and I work at UCLA. For my entire life, professional life, practically, I have lived a long commute from where, uh, I, a long commute from where I work to where I, um, live to where I work. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, I, I really value, um, being around for my kids, picking them up from school where I can, taking them to appointments when I need to, which sometimes means I, I go to, i you know, living in Los Feliz, I drive 10, 10 miles to get them to school. I drive 15 miles to get to UCLA. I teach a class at UCLA, have some office hours, meet with students, then drive back to North Hollywood, which is another 15 miles to pick up a kid, then to take them to an appointment, which is five miles closer to UCLA and then drive home and then, you know, do whatever I'm doing in my life. And then get to do some like legal research when kids go to sleep or are otherwise occupied. Like to me, the legal research part is the me time is the like, just mm-hmm. enjoying that's my Calgon take me away moment. Is this, is this a big reason you said um, earlier when we were talking about books, um, you had mentioned getting so into a book that you want to be in the car. So then being in the car is more you time. Exactly. And then what you're saying is it's that Looking grind, that, that daily effort that really exhausts you because you're having to serve 
everybody in your ecosystem, whether it's students, whether it's, you know, proximity to your husband's workspace or, you know, your kid's school or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And it's also why I said that I try and want to try to think about it in other terms, because Mm -hmm. I can also, you know, I, I love I love my students. I I learn a ton from my students. I love having lunch and office hours with my students. I love having time with my kids, you know, time in the car with my kids can be great time. And when I can sort of frame it in that way, um, it feels a little less exhausting to me, but it's like a, you know, it's, it's a, it's an, it's an MC Escher um, drawing, you know, in some moments, I feel very, if I look at it in a certain way, very supported by all the fabulous people in my life and all of these connections that I'm having and my ability to have all these connections. And then if I just look at it slightly a different way, I see myself in service to Mm -hmm. everyone around me and I'm receiving nothing. Yeah. In service to everyone and then even like another layer up to these ideals that you'll never see through. Like you won't get to see the end of justice because there because to your point or like well off off camera if you will uh there is no end to justice like there's never been a perfect execution of justice on this planet and i think for people working for ideas bigger than them whether it's raising a child or being a spiritual or religious person or whatever like or or any kind of ideal that you're not going to see the end of like at least for me, that is very the uncertainty of that, yet the drive to continue so that it is the good thing for someone, for my daughters, for your daughters, for whomever. Um that that has a weight. Yeah. And it's and it's one of those things they think I mean, we hear a lot and we talk about a lot is the the we we've spent much time reconciling shame, the two of us. And the the space of of shoulds and woulds and coulds um, that ultimately drag us into the doldrums of guilt um, because we're not either being the person that we want to be or we we feel guilty because we want to just have me time <laughs> and uh, you know it's a, it's a hard thing sometimes to reconcile that that desire to Ooh. have that space and just being okay with it right. And it not being a bad thing, because I don't think it's a bad thing to want that. Speaking of that, you mentioned, well, Jonah, you think you were going to say something. Well, I was, what I was going to say is, I think to your point, Rodney, about sort of the frustration of not achieving the broader goals, I really feel that absolutely. And in some ways, you know, in the conversation that we had briefly um, at the very beginning about justice, um, you know, it can be when you, it's, you know, it's like looking at the sun, you know, when you, if you, if you think about it too, too much, you look too close. It's like, it's overwhelming to think about the extent of injustice. Um, One thing that's very sort of satisfying in a, um, in a very particular way for me, I mean, the kind of research that I have been doing has been primarily focused on looking at the Supreme Court's assumptions about mm. policing and about po- police misconduct litigation and and 
those assumptions then guide the, the Supreme Court's um, doctrine about various things. And a lot of my research is simply proving those assumptions wrong. Um, you know, there's, there's um, you know, an assumption that there's lots of frivolous litigation that needs to be, um, you know, addressed by this kind of protection. So then I go and look and I say, look, that doesn't happen, doesn't seem like there's that much um, frivolous litigation. Or here's all these other controls that, that protect against it. And it's very concrete. What what I'm doing and thinking about is very concrete, and it's a it's attacking a very specific assumption, and in some ways mm. it's just much it's smaller, um, but kind of neat neater um, and um, more concrete than attacking the biggest the biggest formulations of problems one brick at a time. It's curious that the it's curious that they use assumptions, yet we have our view of assumptions that they make an ass of you and me like we we know how assumptions work yet that's what which, the highest court in the land uses which to... which leads me to a direction of conversation the you specialized when you were at the law firm this in first amendment litigation well primarily police misconduct but i did a little first amendment in there but too. you did a little first amendment how do you feel about the first amendment especially now we're coming into the Coming into the to the 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 election, how do you feel about Those it in social see. media? Oh, like, God. do you think social media platforms should be held to the standard of First Amendment? Because <laughs> I, I don't. Mean, I, I I do not. Is is uh, I'll put that out there. So this is not a. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I, look. I think I think that that we, I mean, I think that social media platforms should not be allowed knowingly to post false information. I mean, social media platforms are essentially being used as um, news sources for, uh, for, for many, many people in our country. Um, and so I think it's very dangerous when false falsified um, information can can be posted um, because it will be treated as real. And I think there's all sorts of questions that then come up about how you how you think about the responsibility of the social media platform um, to police that to police that information. But you know, I don't, I, I, I I've sort of. I, I think the First Amendment is so complicated and, uh, you know, ultimately I feel driven. I, I don't know that, that what I what I believe and think can, you know, is entirely consistent um, and could map onto a, you know, sort of a, a clean principle of the First right. Amendment. But I think that that social media... Um, dissemination of false information is one of the most frightening things um, happening in our world today. And it connects with exactly some of the questions that you started out this discussion with, with, you know, shared visions of justice, I mean, and shared visions of the world um, are, are hampered by social media disinformation. Yeah, I, 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 no, there are a lot of arguments um, 
from various outlets that like to claim social media platforms um, should allow anybody to say anything at any time because of free speech, but it's a private company. And that's the thing I can't get past. And it's not a, it's not a sub, it, it doesn't have the ability to put you in prison. It just has the ability to shut off your account. It can't, it can't put you in front of a judge and it can't throw, throw away the key. Like, is the First Amendment not really just our protection against government overreach in, in what we say versus, you know, where we say it? And even then, it's regulated to some extent. You can't yell fire in a public place, right? Um, so I just, I don't, I, I, it's something that forever frustrates me and I never have anybody I can talk to about it. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I, I, it's, it's something that I, I mean, I, I share your, your frustration. Um, it's definitely not um, sort of something that I've continued studying and thinking about you know, from a, from a legal perspective or, or an academic perspective, but I share your view. And I, and I, you know, I think that, that, I think that the law is very slow to, um, appreciate the impact of technology on, on rights, um, and power. And I think that, you know, it's one thing to, yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, if you, it, that's a, a theater only has, you know, however many hundreds of people in it, um, right. you know, if you're yeah. yelling fire on Twitter and yeah. you have 60 million followers, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a very Plus paid different, right, very different perspective. Yeah. Um, so I want to, Unless you have no, thoughts, I just, I, 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 I just, I had to, I, since it, since it was something that you've done in your life, it's something I think about periodically, yeah, especially as it comes up. And now we have the election coming up, and there's going to be a December. I mean, you even see it with with COVID nineteen, right? There is a ton of fake news out there about it right now. Right. Um, the one I heard today was uh, there was a thing out there that five G networks caused COVID nineteen. I've heard that. Yeah, I heard it for the first time today um, because Wuhan was the first city in the world that was inundated with 5G, so clearly cause and effect. You don't have to read um, it. You know, the more time somebody hears something, the more so, likely they believe it. You know, it's, it's out um, there, and I don't they, think the First Amendment should apply. So anyhow, Rodney, you had something. The, um, and if you're, not, if, if you're listening and you're not certain that government doesn't keep up with technology, Look up the Zuckerberg yeah, yeah. trial the mess. and listen Hot to the mess. questions yeah. asked about Facebook. Um, so, to, uh, I'm, I'm actually a, a quick comment, and then uh, if we have time, a question. We've, got- We've had three interviews for this season so far, and the number one commonality in all of them so far is facts. And I love that you broke down. Um, that from a legal standpoint, usually, and even from police, you know, if it's a case where we're looking at excessive use of force, it's usually the basic facts that aren't in dispute. It is the interpretation. It is the story around the facts that is being, and and I think that that's something that's we're gonna, Keith and I are probably gonna dive into more and think about more. So that is Reese saying hello to the world. This is her coming out party. Hello. Um, and 
I just I love how you gave us that that legal view on it because I, I, I don't we're not going to get that anywhere else. Yeah, uh, facts are our facts. That. It's how we interpret the 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 outcome of those facts. I yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean That's that was the thing that we came yeah. out of in our last conversation. It was like it's we we basically said the same thing. It's like the facts aren't what's being argued. It's my story. It's yeah. my life. Like the things that affect me that I'm arguing, not really the sure. facts. Now there, you know, we talk about propaganda. Five G like, networks. There are yeah. fake yeah. facts in the world, but drink um, warm water. So this may end up being the last question. Normally we ask it a different way, but because you 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 sit in front of students and you you think about this deeply. Um, and you're not, and you're trying to get people to think about things, uh, especially like policing and police force. How do you, how do you challenge your students, or not even challenge? Like, how do you, how do you engage your students to think about this in a different way? Well, it depends on what this is. How do we get them to think about oh, this in yeah. a different way? Yeah, it's big. Um, so let's say we're talking about excessive force. I mean, that's the um, deadly force. Um, this is this is uh, we're we're talking about the week of May fourth. May the fourth be with you. Um, it's been a rough week for the for this topic, um, unfortunately. And uh, so the like we could easily go to our battle lines. It's racism. It's you know, he was fear for his life. Like, there's, there, but there's more nuance than even those things. And so, like, you're not, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be presumptuous here and say you're probably not trying to give seed your students with what they should think, but giving them the framework for how to think. Um. So how do you, like, how do you approach something this complex and emotional? And so in this, in the same way that I feel like my research is not. Um, staring straight into the sun and to the, into the, you know, but is, is sort of thinking about an aspect um, of the problem. Um, a lot of the teaching that I do is focused on litigation, how you as an advocate um, might think about a case or a, or a, or a situation. There's a, there's a class that I teach an intensive two week class in January um, called Suing the Police. And the focus is really on a lot of the legal barriers, a lot of the barriers the Supreme Court has imposed. Um, and I show students a lot of those cases. And we're, I mean, we meet three hours a day, eight days in a row, and each day is about a different barrier, essentially. And we start with the Supreme Court's decisions, which if you read them, make it seem like no case could ever survive um, because of the strength of the language that the court has, um, has used. Um, and then we read lower court opinions that interpret, you know, that interpret those standards and sort of see where, where courts have, um, have found, you know, still bases for relief. And then we also look at, throughout the whole eight days, we look at three cases um, that are pending or, you know, um, that involve um, police misconduct um, in and around Los Angeles. Um, and also talk to lawyers 
who litigate these cases. And my goal throughout is to have them see, to see, um, to see civil rights and civil rights litigation from a bunch of different perspectives, from the, from the, from the language of the Supreme Court, which seems to shut down all relief, from the work of lower courts that add nuance to those barriers, and then from the work of lawyers on the ground and the ways in which they work through those challenges on a daily level and, you know, meet and, and um, get past other challenges that appear nowhere in the court's opinions. So my goal is to have them see all of those things and to see their potential role and their power as advocates and the ways in which they can take facts and use them um, and interpret them in ways that can, can get past those barriers. And there's no, I mean, we also talk about what impact these lawsuits have, which is a whole other set of questions. I mean, the, the short and long of it is um, lawsuits, when they're successful, don't do, you know, aren't, aren't magic, um, you know, aren't ma don't have magical powers to change the way law enforcement operates. Um, but sort of throughout my goal in teaching is to um, educate about these challenges um, and then to have students figure out um, that those challenges are not unsurmountable and to think creatively about how they can um, get past them and to be inspired by other lawyers who do that every day. Oh,